Well, good morning. If I didn't get to meet you at the front door, my name is Kendall Age. I serve as the lead pastor here. And you are joining us uh, in the middle of a series that we're in, in the book of Daniel. And we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. So, open to Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> well, the good-looking fellow behind me was born in 215 B.C. You may have never heard of him. Maybe you have heard of him before. He was born into the final days of the Greek Empire. So there was the <clears throat> Babylonian Empire, followed by the Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire. And he was born into the final days of the Greek Empire. He rose to power through a series of political maneuvers and even an assassination. He, his dominance grew to include the land of Israel, the land of Judah, where God's people dwelled at the time. And he became a great persecutor of the Jews. A great persecutor of the Jews. A defiler of the temple of God. A blasphemer against God. Here's a few things from the highlight reel of this man named Antiochus. He ordered the scriptures in all Jewish synagogues to be burned. He ordered the sacrifices that were offered to God in the temple to be stopped. He outlawed following the law of God throughout the land of Israel. He built an altar to Zeus over top of the altar to Yahweh in the temple. And then he had a sacrifice offered on that pagan altar and intentionally he chose a pig to be sacrificed there. And then he had the kosher Jews sprinkled with the blood of the swine. Unsurprisingly, this led to an uprising where devout Jews were able to temporarily retake Jerusalem. But having done so, uh, uh, he learns of their uprising and he comes back from Egypt in a fury. And we've got the quote from the book of Second Maccabees. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost. 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. And I haven't even gotten to the highest highlight or perhaps the lowest low light. His direct affront or challenge against God himself. His, his blasphemies against God. He, he was defiling the temple. He was destroying God's people. But he added a new name to his name that everybody had to call him. So if you have heard of him, Antiochus is known to history as Antiochus Epiphanes. He added the Epiphanes. And so from thenceforth, he would be known as Antiochus, God made manifest. Welcome back to the book of Daniel. 
written some 350 years before the events we just described, it describes those events so clearly that most unbelievers that study this book have to conclude that this was written after the events we just heard. Because there's no way that you could have such an accurate prophecy of what's going to happen. And of course, we would agree, there is no way to have such an accurate prophecy of what would happen unless God exists. And unless He decided to prepare His people in advance for what was coming. So Daniel 8 was written to prepare God's people for what they had to face And it is written to prepare us for what the Lord knows that we have to face as well. So with that, let's look to Daniel 8. Follow along with me as as I read. God's Word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue Than from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole ground without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them grew a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, 
Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, (coughs) four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions, transgressors have reached their limit a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise his power shall be great but not by his own power he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great without warning he shall destroy many He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, did not understand it. God's word. The vision begins with these two animals, the ram and the goat. And thankfully, we have a really precise interpretation given to Daniel of this vision. He's he's in heaven, so to speak, confused. He's in this vision, confused, and God sees that and says, Hey, Gabriel, go explain all this. I'm, again, glad that Daniel was there. He's like you and me with this vision. Okay, good. Thank you. I'm glad that we get the the explanation. And so we see a ram with two horns, one higher than the other. If you've been with us for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about these different kingdoms. And this kingdom, we've, we've mentioned before, is the kingdom of Persia, which grew up out of the Medes and conquered the Persians, but then the Persians became the greater part of that kingdom. So these are the two different horns, one being greater than the other. And Persia actually began to the east of Babylon. And so as they came to attack, they came from the east, and they attacked to the west, and the north, and the south, which is exactly what we see in verse 4. I saw the ram charging westward, and northward, and southward, and none could stand before it. So this is the kingdom of Persia sweeping across from the east to the west. The Persians would grow to dominate the world for about 200 years from the year 539 to 333 B.C. But then would come the next kingdom, here pictured as a goat in verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole ground without touching 
the ground, and it had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. So this comes from the west, and this is the Greek Empire. Of course, Greece is to the west of Persia. And so out of the west comes Alexander the Great, leading the armies of, of uh, Greece against the Persians. And they conquer so fast, so rapidly, you know, the picture is that the ram can't stand before the goat. The goat becomes great and conquers and destroys. And I, I love that it says that the male goat came from the west and, and came across the face of the ground without touching the ground. It's a flying goat. This stuff is amazing. <laughs> Airplane goat. Here he comes, right? But it pictures the speed of conquest. So fast is he running that his legs aren't even on the ground. That's how fast Alexander the Great conquered this, this land, the whole known world. And then strangely, Alexander dies at the height of his power, which is specifically uh, predicted. Verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That is unusual. Typically, one dies when they become weak. But this predicts that Alexander the Great would die at the height of his power, which is precisely what happened. So here we have a specific verse talking about the life and death of Alexander the Great 200 years before he even came. After he died, his four generals took over the empire. They divided it up amongst themselves and it kind of just turned into a kingdom. Each of the generals uh, you know, would, would pass along their part of the kingdom to, to their sons. And, to, and so that went on for about 150 years until we get to the successor of one of them, Antiochus. Verse 9 says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious Land. So this describes the kind of realm of the empire that Antiochus was over. Includes the glorious land, which is the land of Israel, God's, where God's people live. And we talked about him at the beginning of the of the sermon this morning. But just to kind of point out a few a few things from here, it says in verse twelve that he will throw truth to the ground. And of course, he is the one who who burned the Torah and outlawed the Torah, from the synagogues. It says in verse 11 that the regular burnt offering would be taken away. And of course, he forbade the burnt offerings made to God. In verse 13, you'll see a phrase in there that says the transgression that makes desolate. This is sometimes translated the abomination of desolation. It's an abomination. This is setting up a pagan altar in the holy place and sacrificing unclean animals to demons in the place of the worship of God. It's an abomination that makes desolate. And it says later that he will become great in his own mind. And here is the one who adds the name Epiphanes, God made manifest to his title. Verse 10, though, I think bears a little inspection. It's an interesting way 
that Apocalypse talks, talking about that little horn. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, as, as, as we hear that, we're meant to picture it in our minds, right? We're meant to, it's all about images. So we picture this, this image growing so great as to the heavens itself. And perhaps grabbing some stars and throwing stars to the ground. Now, as, as, we, as we look at Antiochus, we, we would have to say, he did not actually throw any stars to the ground. So, so how, do we, how do we interpret this verse 10? And I believe we can do that by looking at verse 24. As the angel interprets it for us, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, so succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So when it talks about him having victory over the hosts, it's the host of God's people that's being pictured there. It's the people of God that he's going to have power over, and he will even have power over all the leaders of God's people that are pictured back in verse 10 as the starry host being thrown to the ground. These are the leaders of God's people being, being cast down, powerless before this evil man. Now, I, I just point out verse 10 a little bit so that we can kind of take a little aside here and learn something else about apocalyptic literature. As we read through Daniel, as we read through Revelation, this will not be the only time that we see things like the moon turning to blood, or the stars falling from the sky, or, or great earthquakes, or the heavens being shaken. And what we can learn here is that our starting point, when we, when we go to analyze Daniel and Revelation, our starting point would be to assume that what's being said is symbolic. In this case, it was symbolic, right? It's symbolic of the, how great he becomes and that he throws down his, his enemies, he throws down the leaders of God's people. It is, it is a wise starting point for us when we see language like this in Daniel and in Revelation to start with, this is probably symbolic. Now, we're going to leave some room for maybe some of these things literally are going to happen, but our starting point, our starting assumption is, all right, we're reading symbolic literature. This is probably, what is this symbolic of? All right, so this is a bad time for God's people. It's a horrible time for God's people. We read that 80,000 were destroyed in three days. And so we actually overhear in verse 13 a conversation between two angels. Is there another place in Scripture that does this? I think that's kind of cool. Like Daniel was eavesdropping on angels talking, Right? And one says to the other, how long is this going to last? How long? I didn't know angels asked those questions. I knew humans do. When we go through trials or suffering or persecution or difficulty, how quick are we to say, Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will the wicked triumph? How long do I have to walk through this struggle or this trial. And so great was the suffering that the angels were asking that. And the answer comes in verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, 
Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That is a rather precise sounding number. 2,300 evenings and mornings. That is 2,300 days. The question we have is what does that mean? And, and I want to start with what we just talked about with the stars, the sky being thrown down, maybe the moon being turned to blood and say, our starting point should be symbolic. I think that's true for numbers as well in apocalyptic literature. We want to start by saying, hmm, what could be the sim symbolism of this number rather than taking it as a kind of mathematically precise, you know, exact period of, of time and in human history. Now, that might make you uncomfortable to treat your Bible that way, and I hope you are uncomfortable to treat your whole Bible that way. We shouldn't treat our whole Bible that way. That we're talking about reading apocalyptic literature, Daniel and Revelation, a few other places. But if you're reading, say, in the book of Matthew, where it says that Jesus has 12 disciples, well, how many disciples did Jesus actually have? That would be 12. That is not a symbolic number. That is actually 12. And we know that because Matthew was writing history. And we know how to read history. That was history. And when we read in Genesis that the flood lasted, the rain lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. How long did the rain last? Well, that would be 40 days and 40 nights. Because again, Genesis presents itself as history to us. Daniel does not. It presents itself as apocalypse symbols and pictures. And so it's wise for us as a starting point to take numbers as being uh, symbolic. So what's up with 2,300 days? Many people have actually tried to fit that to the timeline of Antiochus Epiphanes' rule over God's people. Many people. Thousands of people for thousands of years have tried to fit the timeline in there. And most have to kind of fudge a little in order to make that timeline work. And again, I don't think that these days are meant to signify actually the precise period of time. So how is it that this could be symbolic? If you were to kind of do the math here, 2,300 days is like 6.4 years. It's not seven years. Seven is in Apocalypse the number of completion, the number of fullness. So if God had wanted to symbolize the final judgment, he would say it'll be a judgment for seven years. That would be the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God, falling without mitigation upon people. But that's not what this is. This falls short of the full judgment of God. This falls short of the full final fury of the wrath of God poured out. Now it is 6.4 years. So we could say it's a serious judgment. But it's not a full judgment. I think the other thing we could say, because it lists days rather than years, I think we could say something like this. God has numbered the days during which his people will suffer. He has set boundaries to those days. He knows precisely how many of those days will be, and those days will not be one day longer than he has ordained. So even without, even interpreting this symbolically, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about here. That God is in control 
of the days of persecution, of the days of distress, of the days of darkness, and he will not allow them to go past their boundary. All right. Now, what I want to get to, where we need to get to, is applying this. How is God seeking to prepare us for living in our day based on what we've read? But there's one other thing we need to do first. And it's to kind of talk about a common feature of biblical prophecy. If you've studied this before, the, the word that people will use is types. Types and anti-types. Right? I'm going to use a different word that I made up to try to make it more clear. I'm going to call it prophetic ripples. You know when you throw a, a rock into a pond, right? you're going to get a series of ripples. Not just one wave. You get a series of ripples. They're all similar to each other. One after the other, after the other, after the other. Biblical prophecy often comes to us in that way. With multiple fulfillments. Sort of multiple small fulfillments followed by one grand fulfillment. Let me, let me give the most obvious place where this happens. And that is with Jesus Christ. Right? So we read all the way back in Genesis 3 that someone is coming to destroy the serpent. But it takes a long time before Jesus himself actually shows up on the scene. But prior to him, the whole Old Testament is full of what we might call ripples of Jesus. So you think of Aaron the high priest. He's a ripple of Christ showing us that we're going to have a great high priest who in some ways is like Aaron and in some ways is far greater. And he'll stand between us and God and make atonement for our sin. King David is a prophetic ripple of Christ showing us what an imperfect king would look like and helping us long for the, the perfect King Jesus when he comes. Noah and his ark is a type or a ripple of Christ as he proclaims to a dying world, come and escape from the flood. Come and escape from God's wrath. There's a way of escape. I've prepared it. There's a ripple of Jesus in advance. Samson is a ripple. You know, Sam, strong Samson, right? Rescuing God's people by his own strength destroying their enemies, bringing them safety, a ripple of Jesus in advance. We could, we could go on and on. I think we could do a multi-year series of prophetic ripples of Christ seen throughout the Old Testament. It would be a fun series to do. All right, so that shows you the principle that this is the Scripture often works by showing these things over and over again. So as it is with Jesus, so it is with something we don't think as much about, the end times Antichrist. So the Antichrist is a figure, will be a real human being that comes in the last days, that opposes God, that opposes God's people, that exalts himself, that draws many thousands upon thousands to forsake their allegiance to God and to worship Him instead. He will position Himself in the place of God and do much damage before He is finally destroyed by Christ on the last day. All right, that's, that's the Antichrist. 
But like the true Christ, there are ripples in advance. We say antichrist ripples. Ripples in advance that teach us something about that final antichrist. That point to us ahead to that final antichrist. And help us see what's actually coming. And so, here we are in Daniel 8. And I believe a very helpful way for us to think about Antiochus Epiphanes is as a ripple of the Antichrist. And here he is. Consider what he does. He opposes the people of God. He seeks to pull them away from God's word. He exalts himself, creates a whole different system of worship, and he even presents himself as God-made manifest. Just before Jesus came to earth as Emmanuel, God with us. That is Antichrist. And that's what we have right here. Now you might say to me, Ken, you're not making a whole lot of sense here. Or rather, did you make all this up? <laughs> this idea of ripples of the Antichrist? This several Antichrist? No, I didn't. John made it up <laughs> as he heard from the Lord. So John 2.18, 1 John 2.18 John writes, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. So what is John saying? He says, there is coming an Antichrist. He's saying, I'm not denying that. You've heard that. That's true. That's going to happen. I want to talk about now. Because even now, in John's day, many Antichrists have come. And then in 1 John 2, 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. You don't have to be that last guy at the last day, that figure. You can walk in his footsteps by denying the truth of the Trinity, by denying the relationship between the Father and the Son. Next slide. 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. The spirit of Antichrist is at work, had been at work even before John, has been at work from John to us, is at work today, and will be at work and finally manifest in its fullness in the last day with the Antichrist who comes. Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess that the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So what is the mark of, of the Antichrist? This is one who opposes the people of God, opposes the truth, opposes the doctrines of Jesus, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. You hear what's said in that one phrase? He's God, and He came in the flesh. Anything that opposes that is of the Antichrist and is false. And so, back in 1517, as Martin Luther was defending the gospel, rediscovering the gospel, light coming back into the world, he looked at the Pope and called him the Antichrist. And well should he because the Pope 
had put His own Word above the Scriptures. Claimed to sit in the seat of Jesus on earth. Twisted the Gospel into something you could earn or buy. And kept many people from Christ. So, as now that you know 500 years have gone on, we can say he was not the Antichrist. But he was an Antichrist. He's of that spirit. And if we were just to begin to look around, Islam, which grew up after Christianity, as a demonic inoculation to Christianity, as one that tears Christ down from his glorious throne and declares he's just a man, a sinful man, just a prophet, not even the greatest of prophets, denying the Father and the Son, denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and drawing away hundreds of millions of souls. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, do the same thing with their man-made Jesus that they proclaim and pull people away from the real one. The spirit of the Antichrist ripples. And lest we get too comfortable, right now in Protestant churches all over the world, the so-called prosperity, so-called gospel being proclaimed, which is no gospel at all, which proclaims that Jesus came to make you happy and wealthy and wise. And it forgets the cross and it forgets sin and it forgets to warn people of hell and to call them to repentance. And so in churches all over this land, people are going to a Christless eternity because there's a Christless pulpit and it's Antichrist. Dear church, we have in Daniel chapter 8 a prefigure of the Antichrist in front of us. We know that on the last day the Antichrist will come. And we may, we don't know, live to see that day. But whether we see that day or not, we know that same spirit is at work today. The same one. As 1 John 4, 3 said, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. And so I think we're ready for God's word to land on our hearts in terms of preparation. Church, let us be prepared for opposition in this world. Let us be prepared for opposition and false teaching in the church, let's not be surprised. It happens every generation. Right? Martin Luther faced his own battles back then, but right now we have the prosperity gospel on one side, and that's, that's probably the most Protestant of them. But there's all kinds of... You've heard of universalist churches, right? Which just preach that everybody's, everybody's saved, no repentance needed, in fact, sin's not really a thing. In fact, you don't even need to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's what those churches proclaim. So friends, let us expect the spirit of Antichrist to be at work in the world. 
Let's expect that and prepare for that and let us stay close to this book. Let us stay close to this. Let, let us pray for, to God for wisdom as we stay close to this. Let us, let us teach our children the truth of God's Word so that when the next ripple comes and they're all sitting in these pews, that they are ready to stand as God enables them. Let's pray for ourselves and our children and each other that the Lord would help us stand in our day and follow Him. So, I believe this passage prepares us to expect Antichrist. I think second, it prepares us to trust God's timing. Prepares us to trust God's timing. We cannot take this 2300 days, pull it out of Scripture and say, okay, whatever you're walking through, don't worry, it's only going to be 2300 days. First of all, if somebody told me that, I would worry, because that's a long time. <laughs> we can't take it out and use it quite like that, but we can take the principle that we, we talked about. The days of suffering are numbered by God. The days of Antichrist are numbered by God. The days of persecution and deception and difficulty are all numbered by God. So yes, the Antichrist will have his days. But his days are bounded above by the authority that God has said he can have. And he can have no more than that. And his days are bounded to the left and the right by the days God has set aside. And he cannot have one more than that day. God is sovereign in the good times and the bad times. He's sovereign over days of persecution and suffering and difficulty, and his plans are wise and good. All right, so we're called to be prepared for days of Antichrist. We're called to be prepared to hope in, in the fact that God numbers these days. And finally, this prepares us for the end of suffering. Prepares us for the end of suffering in verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. There was a disturbance. The sanctuary was doing what it should, and then came this Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and a lot of bad stuff happened, but then it was restored to the way that it should be again. And friends, this, th this picture is one that we can take with us. This is another ripple. It's a restoration ripple. Back then, what did restoration look like? Cleaning the blood from the temple. Destroying that demonic altar. Reinstituting the sacrifices that God had said to make. Regathering the people of God to worship Yahweh in His temple. That's what restoration looked like then. But it makes us think of the restoration that's coming on that last day. There are days of suffering to come, but they end, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Friend, ever since the garden, our relationship with God has been suffering. It was severed by sin. It's been restored partly through Christ, but, but now we see through a, a glass dimly. But one day face to face. One day the relationship between God and man will be restored 
fully and finally. The day is coming when Christ returns, when he slays his enemies, when he has victory over all that had opposed him, when he comes to stay and to dwell. And the dwelling place of God will be with man. And we'll live in the new city, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and be here upon earth. And in that city, there won't be a temple. And that's surprising when you read the scriptures. You expect there to be an end times temple. There's not. Because the whole city is a temple. The whole city is the holy of holies where God and His people dwell. There will be no sun or moon, so bright will be the glory of God as to provide all the light that's needed from one end of the city to the other. Yes, the temple will be restored on the last day. That, that's some good news, I think. That is some wonderful news. We know where this is going. So the number of days of suffering have been set by God. And you know it'll be true tomorrow morning? There'll be one less. Do you understand that? Do you know it'll be true on Tuesday? There'll be two less. And that clock doesn't get run back. Every morning you awake is one day fewer of this and one day closer to that. That is wonderful news. And the days of suffering, they are finite. But the days of rejoicing... They don't end. They have a day they start. There's no expiration date. They go on and on and on as Christ reigns for all time. So yes, friends, let us have informed expectations about what this life looks like following Jesus. But having informed expectations involves both the reality of suffering and the limitations and should leave us with hope as we consider God is God over all these things, and he is bringing his plans to fulfillment, and we can trust him with that. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand. Let's pray to this God of history. Lord, oftentimes we find ourselves asking questions like, why, Lord? Or, how long, Lord? Oh, Lord, help us hide ourselves in you. Help us find our answer, not in the answers, but in you. You who are sovereign and good. You who prepare your people before they have to walk through things. Thank you for your preparation. Would you prepare us through your word, by your spirit, applying this to us? Lord, help us to be a church that stands, that grips hold of this book, that refuses to displace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I pray this throughout the duration of our days. I pray this throughout the duration of our children's days as well. Regardless of what comes, Lord, help us cling to you and trust you. And thank you that you are high and exalted and above all things. And that we can have hope, eternal hope, 
in you. In your name, amen.